Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Thank you for joining me. It is Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. Depending on when you're listening, it might even be Thanksgiving Day. And Rebecca Claren is my guest today. This is one of those conversations that the scheduling just happened to work out. I recorded this interview maybe two weeks ago and didn't even realize that the release date would be on Thanksgiving. But it is a fitting conversation. We are going to talk today about American identity, about the treatment of Native Americans, and all of those things. They're, they're in Rebecca's new book, and I love this book. I want you to read it. It is called The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance. So Rebecca's history, she has been reporting on Native American issues for more than 20 years, and only recently started to connect the issues that she was reporting on to her own family's history. Her great-great-grandparents are from Russia. They were Jewish people living in Russia who ultimately immigrated to the United States in the 1800s. The reason for their immigration was increased anti-Semitism in Russia, violence against Jews in Russia. Her great-great-grandfather was beaten almost to death in Russia and ultimately ends up coming to America. And when her family arrives in America, the government is literally giving away land in the Dakota Territory for any family that will go there and establish this land and farm it or ranch it or whatever and make it viable. So her family says, wow, free land. Okay, let's go. They move out to the Dakotas, try their hand at farming, try their hand at ranching, and get this free land from the U.S. government for doing so. What was not talked about in her family history was that this land had belonged to the Lakota people and they'd been living on this land forever up until that point, and that the U.S. government had even determined that it was not valuable land for the U.S., and they had treaties with the Lakota to allow them to live in this area. But as time went on, treaties shrank and shrank and shrank the Lakota land, and the U.S. government had an interest in having white settlers living in the Dakotas, in part for a transcontinental railroad, in part to kind of keep the Lakota at bay. And Rebecca's book dives into these two parallel histories of what was happening to her Jewish family in Russia that caused them to come to the States. What was life like in the States, where instead of the binary that existed in Europe of Jewish, non-Jewish being kind of the, the dividing line, here in the States, there's a different and nuanced approach to race, where black people are usually at the bottom, indigenous are near the bottom as well. And then as you move up through whiteness, you get higher on that scale. All of a sudden, her Jewish family that had faced this anti-Semitic violence in Russia is considered more or less white when they get here. And they get rights to this land in South Dakota that the Lakota do not have. They're able to get mortgages on this land. They're able to develop this land. And throughout this time, this is like the late 1800s, early 1900s, the U.S. government is continually stripping the rights of Lakota. So Rebecca's book dives into that history. It is fascinating. I really, really loved reading it, and I really loved talking with her about it today. But it's really interesting, too, to me that like this book, it was released on October 3rd, so four days before Hamas attacked Israel, and then Israel, of course, uh, firing back at Gaza and the West Bank over the last month or so. This book was not written with any of that in mind. This book makes 
a couple of vague passing references to Israel, but it is not the focus at all of this work. But for me, as somebody who does not have an understanding of the history of Israel and Palestine, who does not have a strong understanding of the indigenous issues in this country, who does not understand what it was like for Ashkenazi Jews living in Russia, what that anti-Semitic violence was like, kind of all of those things were new for me. But something about this story that's, you know, a hundred years old now felt very immediate and really helped me understand what's happening in the Middle East right now. And I I can't quite explain it because obviously it's not a one-for-one ratio here. But looking at how the Jews were allowed to live in one specific area in Russia, they weren't allowed to own land, the Russians controlled what jobs they were able to have, how much wealth they were able to have, all of that. And it was an area bordered by the Black Sea. Like that, to me, sounded a lot like Gaza. I saw that connection when I was reading this book. But also, too, what the American government did to the Lakota and, you know, saying, hey, we can both peacefully coexist here. You have your land, we have our land. And then slowly shrinking that land over time, slowly killing off this race of people, Lakota, because their beliefs were different because their skin color was different, because their understanding of the world was different. Again, it's not a one-for-one at all, but this book definitely helped me understand so much more about what's happening in the Middle East right now, but also what happened in America and continues to happen. I mean, I think that's the other piece of this, is like, as as we're here at Thanksgiving time and we're thinking about the treatment of Native Americans, what that has looked like historically, it's easy to think that was all in the past, but it's present too. Rebecca talks to a lot of Lakota leaders, a lot of Lakota elders, and you understand that these people still exist. They are still in our world right now. They are still in our country. And how do we make amends for what happened to them? How do we make amends for how the Jews were treated in Russia? How do we make amends for how Palestinians are being treated right now in Gaza? All of these questions are bubbling in our world right now. They feel like history sometimes, but they are current. They are now. And it's something that this book caused me to wrestle with as well. So I love this book, The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance. It is must-read stuff. Go pick up a copy. Go read it through. It's also just really well-written. It's not a dry history. It is vibrant and comes to life. And it's personal, too. Rebecca talks about her own family in it and interviews many of her family members. And you can feel just how personal these issues are. And I think you'll hear that in this conversation today as well. So go read it. Go check it out. Before we get to the interview today, I want to remind you that I do have a newsletter that I publish twice a week. Go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter to get on the list there. It is free. You'll get an issue in your inbox every Wednesday and every Sunday. If you want to upgrade to a paying membership, I have that option available as well. Paying members get early access to the podcast, so you'll be able to hear this interview a few days before everybody else and every interview from here till the end of time. (laughs) As long as I keep doing this show, you will get early access to the podcast and you'll be supporting the work that I do. So I'm very grateful for everybody who is a paying member. If you're looking for something to put on your holiday list this year, there are gift memberships available as well. So maybe instead of more stuff, um, 
ask a friend or a family member to cover your membership for a year. It's a win-win for everybody. They get to give you a cool gift. They're supporting the work that I do and you get early access to the podcast and newsletter and all that good stuff. HeathRosella.com slash newsletter. Go check that out. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Here it is, my conversation with Rebecca Claren. I want to start, I guess, just with kind of the strangeness of not being able to control the context of your book, I guess. Like, I loved reading your book. Uh, it was incredibly well-researched, incredibly well-written. Uh, I would have read it a year ago and loved it just as much. But like, I happened to read it and it happened to come out right as the situation in Gaza and Israel is is escalating. And I couldn't help but read it with that context and just sort of seeing everything happening that you're describing through that lens. I wonder just sort of as you've been, as the book has been out there in the world and you've been talking about it and things like, has that been on your mind or have you heard that feedback from other people of just sort of the the allegory of all of it? It's definitely been on my mind a lot. I mean, I think for anyone in America who is Jewish, it is a very big thing to be on your mind. And, sure. and I've been feeling sort of tender towards my book because on the one hand, it's been really amazing to hear so many people reading my book and saying, this book is actually really helping me yeah. think about what's happening in the Middle East, or it's bringing me comfort in a strange way. And I am so, so glad. Of course, I didn't write towards that, um, sure. but it's, it's lovely that that's the feedback I'm getting. But I'm also just been very aware that I want the book to have a life and I am not a Middle East scholar, so I've been trying sure. really hard not to alienate anyone. I, I, this book feels so important to me. It's like so full of American history that we don't really usually ever talk about, or in my opinion, not ever enough. And so because tensions are so understandably high for people, even within my own family, sure. you know, there's such a range of, who are all very liberal Jewish Americans, there's a real range of opinions about and experiences of what's happening in Israel and Gaza. So, and reactions to that. So I've just been trying actually to sort of hold feelings for people and be glad that people are making those connections. And clearly, there are many Lakota people who have told me that they feel a connection to Palestinians. I yeah. think there's a real comparative you can make in terms of compassion towards layers of oppression. And I, yeah. I really think that's there. It is a different issue. But yeah, I mean, I think I'll say that phrase again, like you can make a comparative in terms of the compassion you can have for complicated and nuanced, deeply historic issues over land and people who are oppressed. I mean, there's, that's yeah. for sure there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you tell kind of two parallel stories which, yeah, I couldn't help but sort of put against our modern times, I guess. But talking about, uh, you know, Jewish people in the fray in, in you know, Russia a um, hundred so years ago, and then what happened to the Lakota, you know, being contained on, on smaller and smaller reservations over time. And yeah, when you look at sort of all these things, including what's happening right now in the world, land is a big part of every narrative, it seems. And the differences in culture or religion, like not understanding each other on that kind of basic level seems to be at the heart of sort of all these different narratives. Is that 
what you found as well, either in your research or just in thinking about, you know, the book being out in the world, I guess. I think I write this in the book, land, who has it and who doesn't drives this narrative from the very beginning, because in Russia, they're, you know, part of the historical thinking at this point is that part of what was driving the pogroms in Eastern Europe that that really oppressed so many Jewish people, including my great great grandfather, who was beaten to within an inch of his life and had really kind of catastrophic effects of that beating for the rest of his life, which affected my whole family and was passed down in many ways I can't probably even know through the generations. Part of what was driving that was a question of like a new czar in place. And would he be extending the same kinds of opportunities to peasants to have land that they had gotten under the last czar? So I think it's so deep for humans to want land. I think about um, Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert, that old book about the West and drought and thinking about what he wrote about in there about like so much conflict in the world when you really and historic conflict in the world is about land and water. It's it's basic access to resources. And and so it makes sense, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's at the heart of everything. Um as I said, there are these two kind of parallel tracks to the book, tracing your own Jewish heritage throughout Europe and then eventually into the U.S., and then kind of separately the stories of these Lakota people and, and where those two stories intersect. I wonder at what point in your kind of writing process or research, like, when did you realize that these two stories were kind of one and the same? And when did that start to coalesce, I guess, around turning into a book? So I've been reporting in the American West for my entire adult life. Like it's been 23 years now, which makes me feel very old. <laughs> and yeah. I I guess I feel like it took an embarrassingly long time to realize and recognize how entangled my own personal history was with the history of Native people. Even though I had been writing about Native nations and individual indigenous people in America for a long time. And yet, even though I had an excellent education, I really, really did. I, like most of us in America, was not really taught a more full history of of the way Native people were treated by the United States in in this country. And it took until I was I was hired to write a series of stories by I was hired by Investigate West and a nonprofit investigative journalism shop here in the Northwest. And the stories ran in Indian Country Today and The Nation. And that those that series was 2017, 2018. And the experience of getting to really just full time write this series, I just suddenly, it, it wasn't like an aha moment. It was a slow dawning realization of, oh my goodness, all this time I've been pointing fingers at the federal government for the legacy of their harmful land policies and Indian country policies and realizing this is, I am not an unbiased reporter here. I am not on the outside Mm. of the story. I'm in the story because, oh my God, my family were homesteaders on the South Dakota Prairie and my family benefited tremendously from these policies that came at great harm to native people. And I think it was, it was at some sort of a slow dawning and many conversations, honestly, with indigenous people who I was meeting in the course of that story, who I came to really trust and who formed a very unofficial advisory board for me for this book project of people that I felt, and I'm so 
incredibly grateful for and indebted to who I could kind of call up and be like, how am I thinking about this wrong? How am I thinking? Of, how should I be thinking of this? What should I be reading? Who else should I be yeah. talking to? Who helped me see my way to this entangled history? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, just one of the things that you kind of uncover, you say these are these are stories that we often don't hear. And I felt that on both fronts, on the Jewish front and the Lakota front, of just kind of the the different layers of racism at work that like on the one hand, the federal government wanted to strip Lakota people of land and have settlers move out west essentially to have a transcontinental railroad and, and have it safer. But they specifically targeted a lot of recent Jewish immigrants because they had crowded into kind of eastern cities and a lot of the eastern politicians didn't want this influx of Jewish population. And so um, there were, you know, your family's included in that of this this movement west that just it's it's interesting to start realizing that there's not, as you say, kind of one finger to point. There's there's a lot of different places to blame and, and just kind of how racism is at, at the heart of so much of it. Oh yeah. I I, I found it really fascinating. There's a rabbi Tobus Spitzer who's out of Massachusetts. It's really amazing. She said to me, you know, the dividing line in Europe was Jew and non-Jew. Yeah. That was everything about class and, and race. Right the idea of race. And my family comes to America and suddenly they look pretty white. And of course, there are non-Caucasian Jews in America today and throughout the world. But my family coming from Eastern Europe, they get to be white enough. And that gives them this sense of privilege. I write in the book, you know, whiteness in America is graded on a curve and that helped them. But yeah, they were definitely still had some suspect status as immigrants and as Jews. And and yet some of the research I found indicates that like immigrants who homestead, especially Jewish immigrants who homestead, it helps them, even those who, unlike my family, don't what's called prove up, like successfully uh, farm and ranch their land where they get to keep it and yeah. and make money off their land. They get to, just by the experience of being homesteaders, shake off their suspect immigrant status. They look more American. My family certainly felt more American because they yeah. owned land. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't just them. I mean, the the region that you talk about in the book is called Jew Flats, and it's it's a lot of Jewish families that were moving <laughs> out to, to this part of South Dakota, right? I mean, I know. I mean, it, it wasn't a huge influx, but... It wasn't huge. There was about 72 people about, yeah. and there was, that means that was about 30 different families. It's a, a group of families and single Jewish men. And yeah, I mean, they were. it was so interesting because they, they all came from Sioux City, Iowa. But as I dug into the research and really was trying to identify who are these people and using you know, lots of maps and research at local archives to try and figure out who are these people... Turns out like many of them are related to my family or related through marriage. They yeah. all would have spoken Yiddish. They all would have spoken with the exact same Yiddish accent. They were all from the exact same region of what is today Belarus. Yeah. So and they were these islands of Jews in a sea of many, you know, some American born people, but a lot of immigrants, a lot of these like yeah. German speaking Russians which is a thing mm. I didn't ever hear about. But there were these Germans who had moved to Russia and then left Russia and come to America. It's interesting. Yeah, there's a whole lot there. I guess there's kind of two different pieces that I'm curious about too in your writing process because there's the kind of 
real research piece of it where you're actually going to archives and looking at old newspapers and stuff. But there's this whole other element that you bring into it of talking to family members, both within your own family and, and uh, on the Lakota side as well. But specifically within your family, I guess, like it's one thing, I guess, to want to hear these family stories. I think about myself not needing to write a book and say, okay, I can sit back and I can listen to, you know, and whoever's story and let it play out as her version of it. And I can listen respectfully and hear it and decide what I want to take from that. But there's the journalist side of you that can't listen as subjectively, I think, and and wants to try to get at the truth. I wonder, like, in talking to older family members, was that tension ever there? And, and how did you reconcile that? Yeah, I think, you know, this book started with these questions of what are the stories we tell in families and in nations? And what are the stories we don't tell and and why don't we tell those stories and why do we tell other stories there was sort of a an interrogation slash meta analysis i was bringing to family history yeah certainly that was new <laughs> in my family you know and right. um i felt like my training my many many years of jer- being a journalist meant that i could i could hold a listening and a I hope respect for the person telling me the story yeah, and then come back to them and say, well, okay. Cause part of what I did too, I interviewed every single person in my family of my mom's generation who would talk to me and older who had these handed down stories because none of it was my great grandmother and great grandfather, my great grandmother's siblings and her parents who were homesteaders. So none of them are alive anymore. Right. But how have the stories been handed down? It's fascinating to even see like, what are the stories that are told exactly the same way by everyone? And what are the stories that are very different? And interestingly, the ones that are often different have to do with land. As different branches of the family had different sorts of inheritances. And you start to see the tension within my own family of what happened to Jew Flats, because some members of the family lost everything during the Depression. And my great-grandfather... My great grandmother begged him to save those siblings of hers land. At least this is one version of the story. And he did. He paid the back taxes and that land then was transferred in the main to my branch of the family. And those other uh, people in our family never got their land back. And it was very upsetting for them. And so, you, you know, even within my own family, people that really loved each other, really knew how to eventually work things out. You see this tension over land. And that tension over how to tell a story and what I was doing was alive, for sure. I mean, I would say there was no one in my family who said to me, I don't get why you're writing in this way, why you're telling an entangled history. Right. But my family is populated with many lay historians and people, I call it the gene, the gene of like people who keep everything in boxes in their (laughs) attic. I have right. it. Yeah. We have family reunions sporadically and who have written family histories for those reunions or who are just like incredibly good at navigating ancestry.com. And they were upset that there were certain wonderful stories about my family that were on the cutting room floor because I was, yeah. the fact that I was trying. So, so no one was upset of like, why are you telling, like, why are you trying to write about native people? And in fact, there have been some really beautiful statements by cousins of my generation who have said to me, like, I'm just so proud that our family story gets to be a part of this kind of different idea of how to tell American history. I feel like my whole career 
I've done the same thing in a way over and over again, which is try and take very seemingly boring policies and laws and bureaucratic situations and and show how they play out in the lives of real individuals and families. And so because of that, there were certain stories that have been secrets in my family for a really long time that I felt like I needed to tell because they showed the ripples of how government actions play out in my family. One of those is about that terrible pogrom that my great-great-grandfather, he ends up beating his wife. And that is a very upsetting thing for many members of my family. And for some people, it's really upsetting that I wrote about in the book, even though I think it's not an uncommon kind of secret to have in a family. Sure. Um, And I think talking about it is actually in a way healing. It allows us all living today to have more compassion for ourselves with any kind of mishigas, which is a Jewish word for like craziness in our own families to say, this isn't new. We're not bad and they used to be so good. This is just a normal human experience to have conflict in family, hopefully less domestic violence. But And so we can forgive ourselves a little bit for for that mess. That Instead of just like we only ever hear stories about our ancestors that they were so perfect and they always right. looked so good in flattering clothing and, you know, in the photos. So, but, but I guess part of it too, though, is that it's like, it's trauma induced in his case. Yeah. Like he was beaten, as you say, almost to death. That's the cause. Of it. It's not that he was a bad person or, you know, right. made bad decisions. Like, there was something external happening there. And I, I feel like that was an important piece. Like when you talk about the decision to tell that story, like that's worth acknowledging, I think. It's totally, I agree. An- another story I tell, not to scoop my book, is um, my family <laughs> gets to be, they get big in bootlegging because they yeah. had been in, they had been saloon owners. What I learned, which was so surprising that I never knew, was that part of why prohibition, the law banning the sale of liquor, in America was an anti-immigrant effort. There was this sense that all these people from Eastern Europe and Ireland and Italy have come to America. Many of these immigrants had worked in the liquor industry in the past, including my great-grandfather. And this was an industry they knew. And the thought was, well, Henry Ford was pushing for this. Like, if we can get rid of these jobs, they'll go back. And of course, my family was not going to go back to Russia, where it was very unsafe. (laughs) And so they end up bootlegging and making a lot of money, actually, and then getting in trouble. Um, And that was very shameful. I get into this on the page in the book. But, you know, an indigenous judge, when I was grappling with what to do as family members are saying, don't write about this. She said, you know, if you if you keep family secrets like this secret, you're not only getting your own family off the hook, you're taking the systems that made that best option for your ancestors, for their best jobs that they could get, that system that was so anti-Semitic, you're also taking that whole system off the hook. Yeah. That really made a big impression on me, that statement. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of what we've been talking about, the thread of this conversation, that just nothing is done in a vacuum and that kind of the individual choices, you start to realize when you piece it together, like we're all a creature of our time and place and the things that have been done to us and the things that we do to others. Like it's not just a singular story in that way. Your family's part of this much bigger narrative. Yeah. It's an American story. I really think. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about kind of the Lakota work as well. Uh, as you mentioned, this has been 
kind of your your career is is writing about indigenous issues and things like in getting into those communities and and forming a trust with a lot of these elders and things that you have strong relationships with now what did it take to to build that trust and to say i'm somebody you can talk to and you know i want to hear your story it's a really good question well a couple things so I couldn't have written this book without the relationships and the trust that I had formed between people and sources when writing that series, because yeah. there were people then who who trusted me, who felt like the articles I'd written were good and thoughtful and had a lot of context and nuance to them. That was the feedback I got from them, who then yeah. opened doors for me, who connected me to other people. I mean, it makes sense that Native America is skeptical of many journalists because journalism has been done incredibly poorly when reporting on Native people. You look in this, it's, I mean, you don't have to look that far back, but even, you know, the research I did in newspapers is so much racism in the reporting on Native communities or just the failure to write about them at all. And yeah. so that was helpful. I mean, the other thing that I was really grateful that Investigate West did is they formed a formal Indian Country Advisory Board of really thoughtful and wonderful uh, Native leaders who, some of them journalists, some of them not, who helped me consider my stories with a lot of nuance. You know, not, they weren't there to say, don't write negative things about Native people in any, yeah. at all, but they were there right. to say, you know, you're getting that a little bit off or, Here's who to talk to about that. And and so that was really, I think, very important. But I, I do think just having a lot of time is important because to do good journalism takes time. And yeah. it's hard to have time as a reporter. I, I spent most of my career as a freelancer. And you don't necessarily have that time. But you want to be able to fact check well. You want to be able to like write something and then check it and make sure you're yeah. getting it. Right. And, and, you know, for this book, I wasn't sure if Penguin would hire a sensitivity re reader. So I actually used some grant money I had gotten to hire my own. I had like several Lakota sources who were scholars and traditionalists read the book and let me know where I'd gotten things inaccurate. I did the same thing with the Jewish scholars as well. Yeah. Penguin did end up, I'm so grateful, they did end up hiring an indigenous editor to do a read. Oh, and I, I shared the book. I mean, I did things differently than we're often taught as reporters. I actually like printed the whole book, the manuscript out two years, was it a year ago, a year ago? And I brought it to my Aunt Etta in Minnesota, also brought my yeah. very adorable youngest child with me. <laughs> she could read it and we could talk about things. And I read it over the phone to Doug Whitebull, who's the Lakota elder, who's like one of yeah. the main characters, because he's blind and I knew he couldn't read it. So over right. a course of two weeks, we had what he called story hour, and I would call and read to him a little bit. And and the conversations we had were were really just so fascinating and rich, sort of him reflecting then on what I'd written. Yeah. A few of those things end up in the in the final version of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a challenge when you talk about nuance, especially. One is just the time of it, like you said, taking the time to really yeah. dig into it and understand it. But there is kind of this game of telephone that can happen where like, you hear somebody's story and you're bringing your own lens, your own life experience, whatever it is, and projecting that onto their story, not intentionally in any way. It's just it's it's what happens. 
And then to have that that kind of second check for them to say, oh, right, this is what I said, but really I meant it this way, you know. Yeah. It, it's all about nuance. It's not like, I'm not suggesting you miss the big strokes at all. It's really just like, really, it was, you know, you're close, but 10 degrees off kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Or it was my grandfather, not my great grandfather, you know, right. those sort of details. And I, I, again, it wasn't like when certain relatives were like, uh, can you not write about that? I didn't necessarily do that, but I could lean into the conversation, have a chance to talk about it, explain, understand their perspective, maybe even include in a rewrite why I'm rewriting that. You know, I I think I did that. There was a part where I said, these good deeds of my family, they're important for my relatives that I talk about them here. And I explained why, you know. Yeah, no, totally. Um, On the Lakota side, too, I was really interested. You were talking a lot about kind of health and diet and things like that, and that when the Lakota were free to follow buffalo on the prairie and hunt them, they were some of the healthiest people in the world, the tallest people, healthiest people, and foraging a lot for, you know, wild turnips or or things like that. And they had gardens, too. They would also on by the rivers. Yeah. Um, But then when that changed and they were they were moved onto reservations and fed, you know, processed food, like just the diabetes rates have skyrocketed, the premature death rates, like heart disease. Yeah. Like kind of looking at, at how quickly that can change, I guess, too, because it's in the course of a hundred, 150 years, they go from some of the healthiest people to some of the least healthy. Oh yeah. I mean, it was really sobering. There's so many layers. I mean, there's the commodity foods that they were given as part of like treaty agreements United States said, well, we're going to take away the buff. We're going to kill all the buffalo, but you have to live on these reservations where you're not allowed to go hunting or by official policy or go get jobs off the reservations and we'll give you the food you need. And, and, you know, this food was often just terrible food. Uh, There was and, and not enough. There are these incredible congressional testimony from the 20s of people investigating what's going on you know, throughout Native America. And and on Pine Ridge, one reservation, people were eating horses because they were starving. One man says, I'm, I'm dreaming of the sound of horses. He said it a little differently, you know, all night because yeah. that's all I'm eating now. And yeah, just very unhealthy. And there's such an, a resurgence of, of Lakota people changing that dynamic now. And yeah. there's all these Lakota food sheds where they're they're having traditional foods available for people. And there's these wonderful cookbooks that are being written that are sourced from elders of here's how we used to eat and here's what's healthy for us. But you really see um, the layers of that. I mean, when I was at one point during the heart of the pandemic, a friend and source of mine had lost 17 people he knew had died. And I didn't know anyone who had died, you know, and right. that's that's about access to healthcare. It's about so many, you know, being predisposed because you have sure. these other health risks and issues. I mean, there were several elders who died of heart attacks in the course, you know, not while I was with them, but, you know, in the course of me knowing them through this process and just yeah. really heartbreaking. Yeah. And I mean, part of it, too, goes back to kind of these these policies with the federal government and, you know, having these treaties starting in the early 1800s and then kind of continuing through the 19th and 20th century where they're continually being revised or, or rewritten in the favor of, of the federal government over the Lakota people. 
I love this line. Um, you had quoted somebody saying, it's easy to lie to people who don't have lies as a part of their culture because they have no defense against it. That really stuck with me of just the idea of, of the Lakota trusting the federal government. But I, I'm curious, like other broad lessons like that, were there things that you've taken away, maybe not just from the book process, but in, in your 20 years of reporting on indigenous issues, things that have changed the way that you view the world? Oh, my God. I love that question. So many ways I view America have changed in the course of my reporting. And I'm so grateful to the elders who have spent time with me and helping me learn a new history. I mean, there's so many. One that dramatically sticks out to me is I did not know. I was a kid who was obsessed with the Holocaust. I was totally that like weird tween Jewish kid who would reread Anne Frank and like stand. I have have memories of myself like standing in my living room, reading aloud from Anne Frank of like, I do believe people are really good at heart. And yet I didn't know until Doug Whitebull, this Lakota elder, told me that Hitler himself was inspired by America's treatment of Native people. And in fact, and Doug told me that, he called me one day, it was the day after Holocaust Remembrance Day. And he said, you know, I was thinking of your family. Last night, I was listening to these Holocaust survivors on the radio, and I was thinking of your family right away. And, you know, of course, America should condemn the Nazis. But why doesn't America condemn itself? We had a Holocaust here that lasted 400 years, and no one ever talks about it. And then, you know, after Doug talk to me about that. And it's a very, it was very, not an infrequent thing that when I was on some of the Lakota communities and reservations, people just sort of in passing describe what has happened to them as a Holocaust. And yet again, in my education growing up, that was not a part of my history that I learned. And just realizing there's a really wonderful book by James Whitman called Hitler's American Model. That's all about how in all these different ways, the Nazis would used an American blueprint for how to restrict the rights and lives of Jews in Europe and be able to control them. It's very sobering. And I, I think to me, this book has an inherent, I hope it's inherently hopeful because I'm just actually even writing about it and I'm reporting on other people who are thinking about these issues. Yeah, But it is also sobering to really, in the same way that it's sobering to know your own family members in their more complete way and and see them warts and all, it is also a sad experience to understand America as not exactly the land of the free and to debunk so many of the myths that we understand about American freedom. Yeah. I mean, I wonder just as you're uncovering these things, like, understanding who authors history to and just thinking about the version that that you know probably you and I certainly I can speak for myself I guess learned in in school the pieces that were omitted the pieces that were favored the people that were that were uh, raised up what what's kind of your takeaway I guess of who defined our history and how that was written over time I think I'm not the first to say it I mean history is often written by those in power and um and again the stories we tell have a there there's a reason we tell those stories they're very instructive the line of the story teaches us something so 
you know, in my own family stories, the stories we tell are about toughness. They're about religious commitment. They're about family staying together. And I think, well, what are the reasons we tell certain narratives in America? That's the, it's helpful for the dominant class. (laughs) If we start to learn this history of, of the real ways Americans lied and stolen native land, lied about what happened, well, then we might care and we might start to want to do something different and take responsibility. And who has to take responsibility and how much does that cost? And and how does it change? There's something like 25% of adult Americans descend from homesteaders. Very few yeah. of these are Jewish, I should point out, even yeah, though my book sure. is about Jewish homesteaders. That's like, I think there's like a half of a percent, 1%, maybe something like that, that are Jewish. Yeah. But um, 25% is a lot of people. And this yeah. kind of land takings and land redistributing land that the United States did in the you know mid to late 1800s, early 1900s, legal scholars have called this a huge form of affirmative action for white people. And yeah. so, you know, you start to think about, well, if we're rethinking history, if we're really retelling it in a different way, what does that mean for this moment? And yeah. I, I do feel like I write this in the book, like, all histories speak as much to the contemporary moment in which they're written as they do to the past. And I wanted to make that very clear. So my book toggles, as you know, back and forth between not just talking about the history, but the legacy of that history. So a lot of it is set in this contemporary moment, too. I mean, I also just feel worried, like, and I've thought about this a lot, like, how am I getting this wrong? I I hope Mm. that there will be books in the future that will say, oh, yeah, she sort of started to talk about something, but we're going to take that even steps further. Yeah. That would be great. I mean, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation. And as you say, the context of it can change things too. And just somebody 20 years from now who's dealing with a completely different issue may put that lens to it and you yeah. know, use your research to, to inform things. It's interesting too, just talking about the, the homesteaders and sort of what they gain from this, like within your own family, they move out to the prairie and are living in a sod walled, like one room house at first that it gets muddy on the floor when it rains. I mean, just like complete squalor within a generation or two, they have the nicest house in St. Paul, Minnesota and are, are quite well to do. And it comes. Well, that's in they large don't part have the from, nicest house, but they live on the well, nice, a nice house, <laughs> nicest street. Okay. But yeah. a very, a very nice house in, in St. Paul, yes, absolutely. Uh, which is the complete opposite end of, of being out on the prairie in South Dakota. And it it comes from mortgaging the value of the land and being able to trade in off of that. And like there's there's an inherent wealth just in that land that often the indigenous people weren't able to capitalize on. No, and they still aren't really. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I so I wanted to use some investigative journalism tools to kind of create a structure on on which these family stories could hang, and so. I pulled every single deed on my family's land in the Dakotas. By the 50s, we owned 5,000 or 6,000 acres. And then I I pulled every mortgage on every single one of those deeds that was taken out. And you start to see over and over again this pattern of they would take out a mortgage and then they would expand the land or they would take out a mortgage and they would move or they would start a new business that wasn't contingent on weather. And I know they worked really hard. Like, I don't want to take anything away from how hard sure. they were working all the time and and really suffering in, like, on the prairie and yeah. in drought and prairie fire and tornadoes and so many setbacks and challenges. 
And yet that American capitalist system really did help them tremendously. And I adjusted, I used to, I did some Excel spreadsheet work. I did math. I had people check my math and I found that when adjusted for inflation, the amount of money that those mortgages that they got off the land is it's about $1.1 million. Like wow. it's a lot of money it, for in today's dollars. So yeah, but that's significant. I mean, a, a seed money for a business or what I like, that's, yeah, that's a giant head start. Yeah. Economists that I interviewed said it's actually very important to look at these little bits of money over time to understand the what the value of land more than just how much it was sold for because we sold our yeah. our land in mostly 1965 and then the last piece in 1970 and yeah, yeah so you really get a bigger sense of its value by by looking at the mortgages yeah um kind of wrapping it all up i guess we opened this conversation talking about israel and palestine a little bit and i feel like it it comes back around with this question of just thinking now with with the Dakotas, like there are people whose families, not unlike yours, have been there for 150, 200 years now, maybe on the same plot of land, and they feel rooted in that ground, even though Lakota were there for generations prior. Like I I think just about ancestry and, and how we define ourselves, this question of of home and what's a homeland and like that comes up again and again, and who gets to define that? I wonder just in the writing of this book, like what you learned about that, and even just like you didn't grow up in South Dakota and and don't have personal ties there, like personal memories, I guess, but you have these kind of ancestral ties. Like, what are your thoughts on just what what the meaning of home is and and who gets to define that? Wow, that's a big question. Well, I think it's probably wisest for me to find it for myself. So yeah. I kept waiting to feel something when I would go walk on Jew Flats. The, the woman yeah. who owns it now was very kind and she let me come and visit. And my cousin and I went and walked the land where our family had lived. And I just kept waiting to feel something powerful. And I didn't. I never did. Mm -hmm. I felt I brought home from the Dakotas at one point, like some things that had been left on the land. I, I now have over my desk, this like slab of wood that has a nail in it that was, yeah. you know, probably a fence post or part of a claim shack, maybe that my family built. And on the one hand, I have it above my window. And on the other hand, yeah. it, it feels to me now more like the dead weight of nostalgia. It's, it's mm. not really my place. The stories are mine. But yeah. land has very little to do with me. I was born and raised in the Northwest. I I feel very connected to this landscape. I love the sound of rain. It's incredibly right. relaxing to me. I love hiking in huge, tall trees that I am dwarfed by. I have many friends yeah. who live in Colorado who feel so suffocated when hiking in these same places. So that's true for me. But, but also what is different is um, you can't escape like what how is culture created by landscape and so jewish culture mm -hmm. there is so much of our stories and our rituals and our traditions that are about israel that go back yeah. to the land of israel and yeah. our calendar of holidays even is a very pastoral uh calendar from when we had land as jews and we were farmers and the lakota's entire cult not i don't want to say entire but from what i've learned 
so much of their culture and religion and traditions have to do with this very specific land of the Black Hills of South Dakota. And their yeah. calendar is based on on the stars that are above certain places in the Black Hills at certain times. And the buffalo are a huge piece of their culture and traditions and their rituals. And so they are woven to the that place. I don't want to say that if your family is homesteaders in South Dakota, that land doesn't mean everything to you too. Of course it does. But I think what's important to consider is, can we not blame each other for feeling a love of land? Can we say mm. it's okay? I can feel a love of this land. I Someone who has a fifth generation in the Dakotas, I, I hope they are proud. It's really hard to be a farmer in the Dakotas and the fact that they have made it and that they love that land and care for it. I think they should be celebrated on some level. I really do. But how yeah. can they also step towards an understanding of of how the land they have was taken in a very horrible way from Lakota people who also care deeply about that land. How can there be some responsibility taken? As a friend of mine reminded me when I was on her podcast, you know, the harm here to Native people in America, it's ongoing. This is not something that's in the past. This is something that is still happening to Native people. The way we, the, the way we're creating laws, the way we are, Treating Native people, Judge Abby, who's an Indigenous elder who has been really made a huge difference in my life and my write about in the book, she said, you know, we picked the wrong superpower. We're invisible. And um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Native people in America who are working to increase that visibility and to change that and make Native people more visible. And I think they're doing an excellent job. But um, that doesn't mean they couldn't get an assist from those of us who are non-Native and, and that those of us who are non-Native can start to consider our own positionality to this history and to start to step towards repair in our own ways. So I, I think there's this, this old ancient teaching by Maimonides, who's a Jewish philosopher. He was lived in Spain in the 16th century. And he, he yeah. wrote this very scripted steps toward repentance. There are six steps. Saying you're sorry is step number five. So how do you, the first step is to stop doing the harm. And I would say that in America, we have not stopped doing the harm. And and the second step is to say the truth out loud publicly. And in a way, my book is trying to do my, my best job as I can to say at least my version of the truth out loud in a public way. All right, Rebecca Claren there. What an amazing conversation. What a great book. I just, I am so thankful for her time, for her honesty, and for how much of herself she poured into this work. It is right there on the page, and I think you can feel it when you read it, and it's worth reading. The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance. It's something that has definitely been on my mind and part of that, too, is, you know, I interviewed Larissa Fastforce just a couple episodes ago. She's a Lakota woman and brings up these issues in a very different way, mostly through art, interpreting what's happened through art. But uh, that's a great interview as well, a great conversation. So uh, go listen to Larissa Fasthorse's interview on this podcast. And as a reminder, I have a newsletter that I publish twice a week. You can sign up to get on that list, heathrosala.com slash newsletter. Enter your email address. You will get newsletters on Wednesday and Sunday, plus new episodes of the podcast as they are released. 
And if you want to upgrade to a paying membership, you will get the podcast before anybody else. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Give me a follow over there and please leave a good review on Apple Podcasts wherever you're listening. I will talk to you in two weeks. Until then, stay safe.